Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to... We've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. Hey, hey, Las Vegas, what's up? Do you enjoy that rain this morning? I don't know if it's still raining out there. I have no windows in my office. That's often the way that radio works. But um, when I left my house this morning, it was actually raining. I mean, real rain. Not what we in Las Vegas usually call rain, which isn't... I mean, it is rain, because technically all the precipitation that isn't like snow or hail or sleet or whatever else, if it's just unfrozen liquid falling from the sky, we call it rain. But I mean, it was a good rain. It was like a... It wasn't... (laughs) I love when it barely sprinkles... And all of Las Vegas is like, ah, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And you're like, where? Where? What's, where? oh, that, those, those three raindrops on your windshield? You call that rain? That's not rain. But anyway, this morning it was raining. I was so happy. I just, I love rain in Las Vegas. I never appreciated rain until the first time I moved uh, to this city, to the desert. I grew up in a place second most waterways in the United States only to Alaska like we had rain all the time and I never realized how much I loved and appreciated rain until I moved to a place where there was none and now it just makes me excited so congratulations to you if you're listening today you get to listen to a program that is starting out with me in an exciting mood because I got to see rain And I just found a book on my desk that is definitely not mine. And I feel like somebody may have lost this. If you lost Fodor's Travel Guide to Savannah with Hilton Head in the Low Country, that is on my desk. Definitely not mine. Um, But I I will save it for you. I think I might actually know whose that is. But anyhow... Last week, we talked about H.R. 5, the Equality uh, Act. As expected, it did pass the House uh, this week. It's been called the Inequality Act by its detractors. Interestingly enough, I, I, I don't think, again, this is unlikely to pass the Senate. We talked about this last week. Um, but four attempts were made by House representatives to amend this thing. All four amendments were cut down by Democrats. Right? So Representative Tom McClintock, a Republican from California, he put forward uh, an amendment to ensure that the bill would, quote, not be construed to require a health care provider to affirm the self-possessed professed gender identity of a minor. He explained why. He told National Review, H.R. 5 is a dangerous attempt by the Democrats to use the force of government to bend biology and human nature to their ideological whims. I'm not surprised that my amendment to ensure that physicians cannot be sued for exercising their professional medical judgment was rejected. Viewed along with the rejection of my colleague's amendment relating to protecting parents from being sued for discrimination for the act of parenting, the Democrats' radical agenda is on full display in the House. 
So that was one amendment that Republicans tried. Uh, Representative George or Greg, excuse me, Stubbe, a Republican from Florida, he had an amendment uh, that would have ensured that the act would not be construed to, quote, require a biological female to face competition from a biological male in any sporting event. This has become uh, more and more of an issue, it seems, every week, not only here in this country, but even on the world stage. Uh, He also told National Review, he said, I offered this amendment to ensure that our daughters are provided an equal playing field in sports for generations to come and that female athletes are not competing against male athletes for athletic scholarships and Title IX funding. I, for one, don't think it's fair or equal to make young biological women compete against biological males. That's why I introduced this amendment in committee and again to the full house. (sighs) Sorry, had to deal with some allergy issues here. One sec. Okay. Um, What's ironic is that this Equality Act is actually just going in opposite to what uh, what the Civil Rights Act included for women when it came to sports in Title IX. It's just ridiculous. Third amendment introduced was by Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana. His amendment would have ensured that the act would not be, quote, construed to deny a parent's right to be involved in their minor child's medical care. This seems like a no-brainer, right? Of his amendment, he said, quote, the so-called Equality Act would actually eliminate sex-based protections for women by forcing rape crisis centers, ladies' locker rooms, female prisons, women's sports leagues, and other sex-based organizations to admit biological males. Additionally, this bill would eviscerate constitutionally protected rights by empowering the federal government to force employers, medical professionals, professionals, parents, business owners, and all Americans to act in violation of their conscience. The federal government should not be able to dictate a belief system. As we talked about last week, uh, a parent would no longer have the right, legally speaking, to parent their child uh, the way they most uh, seem fit. So, for example, if, if your child was struggling uh, with gender identity and you as a Christian parent say, we're going to help our kid get through this, and uh, y- you you would be seen as being, uh, that would be a hate crime for you to try to help your child get through something rather than, rather than um, simply being supportive and assisting them in, in any sort of change they might wish to make. Trying not to get too too into this because I know we have kids listening today. Representative Louis Gomert from Texas, he put forward an amendment to uh, restore the rights given to we the people via the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Legislation as it's currently written explicitly nullifies uh, uh, the RFRA and would make that defense unusable Uh, in any court of law, whether you be baker, photographer, parent, or anything else. All four of these amendments were rejected. Now, if you reject these amendments, that's essentially saying that you not only expect that these things will happen, but you intend for these things to happen as a result of this bill being passed. Senator Mike Lee of this bill, he said this bill, quote, would dangerously undermine the First Amendment and the freedoms it's designed to protect. Of course, he is in the Senate. 
where this is unlikely to pass. But if your representative in the House voted for this legislation, it's not too late for you to reach out to them. If you didn't reach out to them prior to this vote, reach out now. Either thank them for voting against it or let them know your disappointment in their vote in favor of the bill or the other way around, whatever it is. But please reach out on this bill. This bill is an important one, and this bill we will see again in the future, particularly if Democrats come into power with next year's election cycle. I think this will just... if. If by some chance Democrats take control of the Senate and Trump is no longer president, I believe that this bill, in, in an even greater form, will just sail through and you will see religious freedom essentially just wiped out in this country in one fell swoop. Which seems impossible right now, but if you, <laughs> if you read this bill, there's really no other way. I, I know some people... Uh, say that it's overreacting to think that that's the case, but I don't know how you can actually look at what is included in this bill and the wording of it and the elimination of the protections of the RFRA and not think that this is just stomping all over uh, our rights to freedom of religion in this country. And it's gonna, this thing is gonna, it's gonna pass if Democrats get into power. So, uh, this makes next year's election, in my mind, so much more important than ever. And it's not that I'm a like I I have friends that I have many friends <laughs> that are Democrats. I have uh, friends that are Democrats serving in elected office. I'm not saying um, I'm not saying that Democrats, like as a general rule across the board, support this or support what it's saying. I'm saying that Democrats in Congress support this across the board. By and large, uh, pretty much party line voting on this thing. problematic your vote matters people the people who represent you matter we'll keep things on the federal level here for this first segment uh, dr ben carson is in a battle to keep illegal immigrants from public housing uh, fox news reported that um, secretary carson faced harsh criticism from Democrats earlier this week when he fielded questions on Capitol Hill uh, on a proposed rule change that would strip public housing assistance for illegal immigrants. Representative Carolyn Maloney, a Democrat from New York, claimed that Carson's plan would bring nothing but despair to thousands of American families. Well, they're, they're not actually American families if they're illegally in the country. Quite frankly, I find it despicable, Maloney said, of the plan, which would eliminate government aid for families with members who are in the U.S. illegally, even if other family members, such as children, are citizens or legal residents. Uh, her Housing and Urban Development, or HUD study, found roughly 25,000 households are in this situation, including approximately 55,000 children with legal status. Your plan to create vacancies by making 55,000 American children homeless is among the most damaging proposals I've ever seen, Maloney said. Where will they live? She asked, wondering if Carson would have them stay in cages on the border. Carson was quick to defend and explain the proposal, which he said addresses Maloney's concern. He said, quote, if you read the rule carefully, you will see that it provides a six-month deferral on request if they have not found another place to live. Carson said that deferral can then be renewed twice for a total of 18 months, which is plenty of time for Congress to engage in comprehensive immigration reform so that this becomes a moot point. Uh, the proposal also notes that existing law prohibits the government from providing housing assistance to those in the country illegally and allows Carson to strip assistance from anyone receiving it improperly. 
The current system lets families of mixed immigration status receive a prorated amount of assistance for those who are citizens or legal residents. Carson said that while these families receive assistance, there are other families where every member is in the country legally who have to spend years on a wait list to get help. He noted that this includes hundreds of thousands of children, not to mention disabled people and the elderly. If, in fact, you want to explain to the American citizens who have been on the wait list for several years in your district in New York why we should continue to support families who are not here legally, I would be happy to join you in explaining that to them, Carson told Maloney. Look, I've had the privilege of meeting Dr. Carson uh, several times, actually. The man is literally a genius. I'm not talking about his politics necessarily right now, just his actual IQ. He's a brain surgeon and just an incredible, incredible success story. And on this one, there's just there's so much logic here that you have to ignore to even make this argument. And, and, and he's, he explains this. If you have nowhere to go, there's a six-month deferral, up to 18 months total, and oh, by the way, that should give you time that if you're working illegally or if you have other family here for you to find another place to live, not to mention we should be able to get immigration reform done by then. Of course, everyone on the Hill knows that's unlikely to happen, hence the pushback. But the main thing here is that, one, what's happening is actually illegal. As Dr. Carson pointed out, is illegal for our government to be uh, housing in, in this manner. And two, American families, where every single member of the family is an American citizen, have literally been waiting for years to access this housing. Meanwhile, those who are here illegally are illegally being given priority to housing that they will illegally occupy, essentially. Not that they're illegally occupying, but that the government is giving it away illegally for them to occupy. Now, I'm all for helping our neighbors and those in need. The government's first and primary responsibility is to protect its own citizens. And when it comes to federal housing, the priority has to be Americans. And these Americans, according to Carson, include hundreds of thousands of children, the elderly, and the disabled. So this isn't about cruelty. You can't say, well, what about these 55,000 children you're going to make homeless? Well, what about the hundreds of thousands of children that are Americans that, that you're making homeless by giving these kids priority? It's... Uh, and it sounds cruel, but it's not. It's about who's responsible. Look, if you're taking your your neighbor's kids to Chuck E. Cheese, but you're feeding your kids peanut butter and jelly, there's a problem there, right? It's the same idea. Same concept. On the good news front, President Trump has no desire to go to war with Iran, in case anyone actually thought that he did. Uh, retired U.S. Navy Admiral William McRaven told Fox Business he isn't too concerned about the threats from the Islamic Republic of Iran. He said, quote, the president doesn't want to go to war in Iran and the Iranians absolutely don't want to go to war with us. Both sides are being probably too pro uh, provocative at this point. McRaven is a former U.S. Special Operations uh, commander, and he said that if the intelligence report is credible, which he assumes that it is, American naval forces are well equipped to deal with the perceived uh, threats that are happening, and said that it was, uh, and said that there we've taken prudent steps, and we've put on hold potential for attacks on Americans. So there you have it. 
what was an escalating situation in Iran just last week appears to be uh, dying down or at least quieting down a bit thanks to what we can probably call peace through strength. It works, people. And I'm grateful for a president who isn't afraid to flex some American muscle once in a while to help maintain peace around the world. On a more troubling note, however, some American terrorists are set to be released back on the scene today and in upcoming weeks. And senators are asking the Trump administration why the American Taliban, as he is known, is getting out of prison early. This guy is a convicted terrorist. Uh, a bipartisan group of senators are asking the president to reconsider the release of John Walker Lind, the guy known as the American uh, Taliban. In a letter to the president, uh, this joint group of senators wrote, We write to express concern over the anticipated release of convicted American Taliban fighter John Walker Lind and request information about what steps the U.S. government is taking to ensure public safety. Mr. Lind was captured in Afghanistan in 2001 and the following year pled guilty to serving as a soldier of the Taliban. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison but is scheduled to be released early from federal custody on May 23, 2019. As a U.S. citizen, he was possibly the most visible of all, all Taliban uh, fighters following uh, of those that were taken into custody following September eleventh. Uh, well, the letter goes on. They're not just worried about this guy who was scheduled to be released today. They said as many as one hundred eight other terrorist offenders are scheduled to complete their sentences and be released from U.S. federal prisons over the next few years. Little information has been made available to the public about who, when, and where these offenders will be released, whether they pose an ongoing public threat, and what your agencies are doing to mitigate this threat while the offenders are in federal uh, custody. Senators also wanted to know, quote, how many prisoners in federal custody convicted of terrorism-related crimes or who are categorized as extremists will be released between now and 2025, and where will they be relocated? And then they went on to talk about the why Lind was convicted and why they do not believe that he should be released. Now, why we would think that these guys will get out of jail and magically fall back in love with the United States is beyond me. I mean, if anything, I think the opposite would probably be true, right? I mean, if you were a terrorist who hated the United States going into this thing, you're probably going to hate us more now that we just took eight years of your life away and sat you in a, in a prison. And I realize that some people might find this cruel, but in my mind, if you declare war on the United States by knowingly actively joining and fighting alongside a known terrorist organization and we catch you you don't get to come back to the United States as a, as a free man ever like that's it I mean, maybe, maybe it's not life in prison for you here maybe we let you free but with the stipulation you're not allowed into the country if we can figure out a way to secure our borders and make sure that you never come back I, I don't know which is better from a human rights perspective or what have you but I just think from a practical standpoint you don't get to live in my neighborhood if you're a convicted a terrorist who was fighting with the Taliban and, uh, you know, saying death to America and Americans. Like, I feel that most Americans would probably agree that they don't want that guy as their next door neighbor. You know, for the sake of your, you know, your family, children, home, safety, all these things. I, I think it's just, I think it's just 
smart. I think that most Americans would say, hey, you know what? Probably I don't want him in my neighborhood. Well, if you don't want him in your neighborhood, whose neighborhood do you think we should put him in? None of the neighborhoods. That's the point. I think all Americans would agree on that. Hopefully the Trump administration is taking this all into consideration. You know something else I think that Americans can agree on? A, a proposal from the TSA. I know, I know, generally speaking, most Americans aren't a big fan of what the TSA does. But this one I actually, I really like. And oh, by the way, they're, they're, they're kind of doing their job at the airports. I realize that there are failures and that there are incidents and that there are things that TSA does that the TSA shouldn't do. But overall, I'm, I'm grateful for them and I'm grateful that they do their job. And they're getting a little creative. In fact, they're planning to use loose change left in trays in airports to partly fund the $232 million uh, uh, request from the Department of Homeland Security to help pay for border operations. How much money is possibly left behind in these trays, you say? $3 million worth of loose change in airports every year. When I read this report, I'm not going to lie, it made me just want to go hang out at McCarran a whole lot more. <laughs> just go find that spare change. I'm like, alright. If there's $3 million, I'm going to find at least a dollar worth here at McCarran. <laughs> right? No, I think this is a, it's a good idea. Three million dollars in loose change at our airports every year. Three billion. Now, granted, it's just a drop in the bu bucket compared to the full uh, request and the full budgetary needs for our national security. But that's three million dollars that's going to be spent somehow. And if it's in our airports already, we sh I think it's smart. We should use it to make flying, driving, whatever uh, the Department of Homeland Security is involved in for securing us. Let's use it to help make us safer. I think it's a great idea. I like to see the feds using their heads like this. We should have more of this sort of thing going on. I like it. <sighs> you know what else I like? Break time. And it's break time. Stay with us. You're listening to KVXL 101.1 FM Experience 30 Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. And we will return in just a few moments. All right, a new study by Gallup shows that 4 in 10 Americans embrace some form of socialism. While 51% of U.S. adults say socialism would be a bad thing for the country, 43% say it would be a good thing. This is... Not acceptable, America. It's deeply, deeply disturbing. And just another example of how my generation does not, as a general rule, use a good deal of intelligence on some things. I mean, in 1942, 40% of Americans described socialism as a bad thing. 25% described it as a good thing. So while... It's, it, is, it is encouraging to see that 11% more Americans think socialism is a bad thing than did in the 1940s. It's more disturbing that like there's been a 20% increase in those who think it's a good thing. 
Essentially, what we have now is all Americans have an opinion on socialism, whereas in 1942, 35% had no opinion on the matter whatsoever. My question is this. Would Americans... I'll target in on millennials here, because I feel like, aside from Bernie, most socialist-wanting Americans are uh, the younger crowd. The crowd that thinks we're entitled to everything. Just give it to me. I don't care how you got it. It's, you should probably share it with me. It's probably mine. You probably need to not be selfish and just let me have that. That's yours. It's now mine. Would these same Americans who think that socialism is so grand choose socialism if they knew that in exchange for free education and free health care, they would have to give up their personal property, such as their iPhones? Or their cars, or their pets, their homes, their Jordans, their AirPods. Would any millennials actually be willing, actually be willing, <laughs> actually be willing to live under communism if they knew the real costs of communism as practiced in some 40 nations over the past century? Denial of free speech, uh, the, the elimination of a free, a free press, the lack of ability to assemble freely. Bye-bye, I mean, <laughs> protesters. Put that sign away. Imprisonment, execution of dissidents. You, you think you're going to say something on Twitter? Dare you. Dare you. Go ahead and tweet that. You're going to be sitting in prison tomorrow. No free and open elections. You want to campaign for Bernie? No. You're not. Mm -mm. You will not get a vote. No independent judiciary. No rule of law. Dictatorship in all matters and on all occasions. By the quote-unquote Democratic Party ruling your country. Oh, Oh, but you see, but that's not... You're talking about communism. We're, we're talking about socialism. They're completely different things. It's really... You can't compare the two. Really? Are they really that different? Let's, let's, let's talk about this. Let's just talk about this. Socialism assumes that mankind is inherently good. You cannot have a socialistic mentality without this assumption in place. Assumes mankind is inherently good, that he is hardworking, and that he is cooperative. It makes no room for personality or for ability. For example, those who are naturally competitive or those who might naturally uh, be mentally challenged. There's no deviation from the standard and therefore no exceptions. You are good, hardworking, and cooperative. Your skill set is at least equal to everyone else's. That is the foundation of socialism. If you take out any of those factors, it doesn't work. Hence why it never does. Our founders knew that mankind is not inherently good, hardworking, or cooperative. They could have created a socialist utopia. They had a blank slate. They could create whatever they wanted to. They could have, they could have done this, or at least tried to. In fact, more than anyone else in the history of the world, I believe that our founding fathers could have used that oft ill-reflected mantra of, but what about in the book of Acts? The early church had all in common, and that worked out pretty well for them. Surely, if this sort of experiment could work anywhere, it would be in the early colonies where Christianity was accepted on a widespread scale. Well, first off, that whole um, 
everything in common didn't work out too well for Ananias and Sapphira, who, by the way, had their own land to sell. <laughs> but the difference between socialism and the teachings of Christianity is simple. Christianity says, take what is yours and share it with others. Socialism says, nothing is yours, so we'll take what you have and share it with others for you. In Christianity, what's mine is yours. In socialism, what's yours is everybody else's. Our founders knew this wouldn't work because mankind is not inherently good, hardworking, or quite frankly, even cooperative. If we were, you would not have to constantly nag your children to be kind to each other or to make their beds or to threaten them uh, with an inch of their lives anytime you enter a grocery store. Right? Anyone who has or has ever been around children knows that mankind is not inherently good, hardworking, or cooperative. It just isn't the case. James Madison said, If men were angels, there would be no need for government. And that it is a reflection of human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. Or we can quote George Washington. Our our first president said, We must take human nature as we find it. Perfection falls not to the share of mortals. We as humans are not perfect or inherently good, as socialism would have us believe. And despite what anyone is going to tell you, it's very closely linked to communism. Now, communism was outlined and popularized by Karl Marx in his Communist Manifesto. And it's it's a thought system that can basically... Or thought slash governing slash political slash personal slash religious, really, system that can be boiled down uh, to 10 basic thoughts or ideas or tenets. Okay. The first is that uh, the, the, there, is no, there is no private property. There is no private property. Everyone rents their land and they're renting it from the government, and that land is used for the common good and for public purposes. Uh, secondly, it requires a heavy progressive uh, tax. Graduated income tax, very, very high tax. Thirdly, there is no right of inheritance. Zero right of inheritance. It doesn't matter what you got. That has no effect on your children. Everyone will work equally and you will not pass on anything. Fourthly, there's the confiscation of property of anyone who doesn't comply. Five, equal liability for everyone to work in whatever way the governing body decides. Sixth, you combine agriculture and manufacturing industries together and you gradually abolish the distinction between urban and rural and you uh, equitably distribute the population over the entire country. You spread everybody out. Seventh, you have free education in public schools. Interesting that that was a tenant of Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, isn't it? Eighth, you centralize all credit in the hands of the government or in the state. You have a national bank, a state capital, exclusive government monopoly of all money in your country. Ninth, Government controls all communication and transportation. You want to talk about state-run, state-owned media? 
There you go. You need a car? No, you don't. And tenth, you take factories, everything that's creating or producing anything, any sort of business the government runs. State ownership across the board of all things. And communism's focus, you've probably heard this before, it's, it's, uh, it's from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And to achieve that goal, you often will find an in-your-face dictatorial system where government rules all and is all. Now, socialism, <laughs> the mantra of socialism is the same for but one word. Socialism says, from each according to his ability, to each according to his contribution. But what's ironic is that, like communism, socialism also often comes with a leader who is in fact a dictator. The difference is, the socialist dictator promises stuff that sounds good. For example, Fidel Castro, who promised free elections, free speech, free press, free all the things but never allowed any of this to happen in his socialist country. Communism doesn't make... <laughs> communism doesn't care if you think it sounds good. Socialists, they try to make it sound good, even though it's not good. So how does socialism actually uh, differ? What is socialism? There's a website called The Balance. It's actually a personal finance and improvement site, largely nonpartisan. And it actually had a really good breakdown of socialism and different aspects of this system. So I thought we would just look at some of what they say happens in a socialist society. Socialists look at individual needs and greater social needs. They allocate resources using central planning as in a command economy. Examples of the greater social needs include transportation, defense, education, healthcare, and preservation of natural resources. A mantra of... so Well, we already went into that. Everyone in society receives a share of the production based on how much each has contributed. This system motivates them to work long hours if they want to receive more. Workers receive their share of production after a percentage has been deducted for the common good. Socialists assume that the basic nature of people is cooperative. They believe that this basic nature hasn't yet emerged in full because capitalism or feudalism has forced people to be competitive. Socialists argue that the economic system must support this basic human nature before these qualities can emerge. Mm -hmm. The biggest disadvantage of socialism is that it relies on the cooperative nature of humans to work. It ignores those within society who are competitive or not cooperative. Competitive people tend to seek ways to overthrow and disrupt society for their own gain, according to socialism. Capitalism harnesses this greed-is-good drive, so while socialism pretends it doesn't exist. As a result, socialism doesn't reward people for being entrepreneurial, and it struggles to be as innovative as a capitalistic society. Also, the government has a lot of power. This works as long as it represents the wishes of the people, but government leaders can abuse this position and claim this power for themselves, as they almost always do. <sighs> there are no countries that are 100% socialist according to the Socialist Party of the United Kingdom. 
Most have mixed economies that incorporate socialism with capitalism or communism or both. The countries with the strongest socialist systems around the world are Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. Cuba, China, Vietnam, Russia, and North Korea incorporate characteristics of both socialism and communism, leaning more... And you're like, well, but those countries are terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Algeria, Angola, Bangladesh, Guyana, India, Mozambique, Portugal, Sri Lanka, and Tanzania all expressly state that they are socialist countries in their constitutions. Their governments run their economies, but they have, quote, democratically, unquote, elected governments. Now, there are eight different types of socialism. And this is really what I wanted to get into when it comes to figuring out the differences between communism and socialism, because most people just assume that not only are they different, but that there's only one kind. Well, communism and socialism really are not that far apart. Socialism is like communism's little brother, or more like its twin. Yes, that would be a better analogy. Communism and socialism are like twins. They're just not identical twins. Eight types of socialism. Democratic socialism. The means of production are managed by the working people with a democratically elected government, but the central planning government distributes common goods, such as mass transit, housing, and energy, and the market distributes consumer goods. There's revolutionary socialism, where socialism emerged only after capitalism has been destroyed. The factors of production are owned by the workers and managed through central planning. Libertarian socialism assumes that the basic nature of people is rational, autonomous, and self-determining. If we remove the, stru the structures of capitalism, people will naturally seek a socialist society that takes care of all, free of economic, political, and social hierarchies. Because that has never once happened in the history of the world. <laughs> that once capitalism was out of the way, people naturally sought a society that takes care of everyone without any sort of hierarchy. That is like the most mumbo-jumbo garbage. There's market socialism, where production is owned by the workers and they decide how to distribute it amongst themselves. Anybody sense any problems coming there? Anybody? Anybody? Green socialism. This is a socialistic economy which highly values the maintenance of natural resources and emphasizes public transit and locally sourced food. There's also what's known as Christian socialism. And the belief that the Christian teachings of brotherhood, which as I already mentioned, this goes back to the Acts story, and those that claim that, these, that Christian values are the same as those expressed by socialism. But, again, as previously mentioned, they are completely different because Christianity says, use what you have to help others, where socialism says, you don't have anything because it belongs to everyone and we will take it from you. Utopian socialism arose in the early 19th century and says that if we can just have some experimental societies, if you can just let us try this a few times, eventually we will find the one that works. <laughs> and Fabian socialism, which was uh, created and extolled by a British organization, 
and advocated a gradual change to socialism through laws, elections, and other peaceful means. So they're like, we will use a democratic society that is a capitalistic one and by law eventually transform us into a socialist uh, system of happiness. But no matter which of the eight forms of socialism you try, it simply doesn't ever work. Venezuela being the latest case in point. I mean, look, socialism forbids private property. There's no private property. Man can no longer own the land. You will forever be a tenant, never the owner. And to the best of my knowledge, there is no time nor place in history where this was ever done. There's never been a time where boundaries did not exist, where a family or a country could not build a fence around their land and tend and cultivate it and protect themselves and create their own home. And we could get into property taxes and the issues there and how you never actually own your home. But this is not the time nor the place. But yes, I think they should be abolished. The glaring issue with the to each according to his contribution thought is that if that that thought is boiled down to its most basic core, then the bottom line desire of socialists um, for socialism isn't actually necessary. Instead, a capitalistic society will, with the help of a free market, eventually reward work based on contribution. The difference is that capitalism isn't ensuring success. The, the, capitalism put the, puts the risk on the worker. Socialism ensures success by regulating markets, uh, running most industries, and allowing you to be successful to a point based on how it feels you have contributed. And once society believes you have been rewarded according to your contribution, that reward can be confiscated or ended. And additionally, if what you get from society is truly based on what you put in, we have this problem of what, what of the elderly, what of the poor, what of the mentally handicapped, what of those who are in fact the weakest in society, who aren't actually contributing. If this is all about getting what you put in, or what we think is your worth based on what you put in. It, it's, it's, it's a maddening system. And it's a twin to communism. They're like, well, no, the evils of, of communism far outweigh the evils of socialism. Do they? Think about, think about the basic underlying thought. If it's to each according to his contribution, again, I ask, where does that leave the elderly, the poor, the mentally handicapped? What about the weakest in society? It's not a pretty picture. And I'd like to end today with this thought from the Heritage Foundation's Dr. Lee uh, Edwards, brilliant historian, author of over 25 books. And he wrote this. He said, if you were asked how many Jews died in the Holocaust, you would probably respond, six million. We learned that correct answer in our schools and universities through the books and articles we have read, the movies and television programs we have watched, our conversations with families, friends, and colleagues. There is a continuing campaign to remind us of the Holocaust and to declare never again. And rightly so. The Holocaust carried out by the Nazis, their deliberate campaign of genocide, was the greatest evil of the 20th century. But if you were asked how many victims of communism have there been? How many victims of socialism have there been? You would probably hesitate and respond, 5 million? 
20 million? 50 million? Few of us would know the right answer. At least 100 million men, women, and children. More than all the deaths of all the major wars of the 20th century. Communism committed the great crime of the last century. It is a difficult number to comprehend, let alone to accept. Surely you might say there could not have been that many. But we can be certain of saying that there have been at least 100 million victims of communism because of the painstaking research of the editors of the Black Book of Communism, published by the Harvard University Press. They document that each and every Marxist socialist regime has prevailed by way of a pistol to the back of the head and a death sentence in a forced labor camp. There is no exception, whether communism, socialism, or in China under Mao Zedong, North Korea under Kim Il-sung, Vietnam under Ho Chi Minh, Cuba under Fidel Castro, Cambodia under Pol Pot, or Ethiopia under Mengetsu Hale Mariam. According to Stefan Cordes, the editor-in-chief of the Black Book of Communism, the leading mass murderer is Pol Pot. Pol Pot, whose attempt to communize Cambodia resulted in the deaths of one-fourth of the country's population. His closest rival is Mao, under whom as many as 40 million Chinese died in just one socialist campaign, the grossly misnamed Great Leap Forward. Of the Soviet Union's first two dictators, Lenin and Stalin, Cordes says, the blood turns cold at its venture into planned, logical, and politically correct mass slaughter. And what price? To socialism. We must not limit ourselves to numbers. The Chinese philosopher Lin Yutang listed the little terrors that prevailed in China, making children of 12 years old subject to capital punishment, sending women to work in underground coal mines, harassing workers during their lunchtimes with threats of prison if they were late in returning to their tasks. There were the, ta the costs in terror. One Soviet defector wrote about Soviet life, we lived in a world swarming with invisible eyes and ears. There were the costs in thought control. The content of everything in print and broadcast was limited to authorized truths. The Soviet press dismissed the 1932-33 forced famine in Ukraine that took the lives of 7 million innocents as an anti-communist myth. One Western apologist for the regime, Edward Herrett, wrote, I have crossed the whole of Ukraine and I can assure you that the entire country is like a garden in full bloom. And there were costs to the world. There were no crises anywhere in the world, from Southeast Asia to the Caribbean, from Sub-Saharan Africa to the Middle East, in which the ideological ambitions of Moscow and its imitators, driven by Marxist-Leninist thought, were not involved throughout the 20th and into the 21st century. This is the reality of socialism. A pseudo-religion grounded in pseudoscience and enforced by political tyranny. And this is the case against socialism. A god that has failed, a science that never was, and a political system headed for the ash heap of history. And that is the system that four in ten Americans say we would be better off as living under in this country. I suggest, based on the evidence, that this is not so. And that the government that our founders gave us, founded upon the Judeo-Christian principles of the Bible, 
and ensuring life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all is a much better way to go. And the reason why we have managed to survive as a nation for over 200 years in a holy experiment with unparalleled success the world over. That is all the time that I have left for today. If you love American history stuff, you are going to love June 2nd here at Liberty. We're going to have a guest speaker, Rick Green from Wall Builders. He also has his own uh, his own historical ministry. Um, he's going to be with us, and he's going to be sharing many things. In fact, he may join us on radio next week sometime. Not sure yet. Uh, still working on that. But it's going to be a fantastic event. You're going to want to be here this Sunday. We have Dr. Troy Shoemaker from Pensacola Christian College. He'll be here speaking in all of our services uh, this Sunday. So be sure to join us. 9.30 or 11.15 Sunday morning, 6 p.m. Sunday evenings. Our address is 65. 01 West Lake Mead Boulevard, Caddy Corner from the Best Buy on Rainbow and Lake Mead. For those of you here in Las Vegas locally, if you are not local, but you're like, man, I hear you talk about your church. I wish I could experience your church, but I live uh, I, I live in Missouri. That's okay. You can stream us online. Just visit our website at experienceliberty.com and click on the live stream. And you can watch our service there. Or you can just keep listening because in just a few minutes, uh, we will continue with uh, our pastor, Dr. David Tice. His program is coming up at 8 o'clock. And uh, you can you can, you can can listen to that then. And I can't think or speak right now because I'm looking at my, uh, my, my automated programmer thing for radio and it's telling me stop talking stop talking which song do you want which song do you want so i'm trying to pick a song while i'm talking to you and it's not working so all that to say just join us for church whether you're here in person or you're streaming us online be here we'd love to have you we're going to end uh with the ball brother singing just as i am and we look forward to seeing you all back here tomorrow same time same place on kvxl 101.1 fm experience the radio from liberty baptist church in las vegas have a great day everybody <laughs> <laughs>